Hi everyone, welcome back to Do No Harm. On this episode, we're going to be talking about fatophobia, blackness, and intersections with health. And we have two special guests with us, so we'll let them introduce themselves. Um, I can go first. <laughs> My name's Sophia Say, she or hers. I am a senior at Bowdoin College studying sociology and Africana studies. I was previously on the pre-med track, so I am very well-versed, I would say, on the health field and also science and I also want to study in the future how fat phobia affects black women and communities of black women yeah thanks for having me and I'm Cicely also she her pronouns uh, I'm a senior at Vassar College and also a first-year student at uh, Mailman School of uh, Public Health that's Columbia yeah I guess I'm here because I'm I'm doing public health for one uh, and I am a fat biracial woman uh, like black and white and I am writing my undergraduate thesis about like health identity and like stigma around like fat and like just the experience of that and that obviously comes with a lot of intersections with like race and other like facets of identity so that's why I'm here. Cool. Thank y'all. We're so excited to have you guys on our episode as our guests and super excited to chat with you guys. Per usual, I'm Athena. And I'm Escadar. So to start us off with today's episode, we're just going to go through a couple of different definitions so that you guys kind of understand what we're talking about throughout the episode. So the first one is fat phobia, which is the pathological fear of fatness. And it is, as with many phobias and systemic issues, both structural and individual. Um, and we'll be delving into kind of the different ways that that manifests, particularly in relation to Blackness. And the other definition that we have is anti-fatness, which is similar to fat phobia. And again, kind of describes this, not fear, but more so of like a, a dislike or a structural bias towards fat folks. Yeah, I guess I'm interested to know kind of how, how you both look at those definitions. I don't know if I've defined them super well, but how you look at them and how you think maybe fat phobia versus anti-fatness kind of play out differently and what those two distinctions mean to you. Yeah, I mean, I put the uh, like, I'm interested in hearing like what your guys' thoughts are on this because uh, mine, Athena's mutual friend Karina, like brought this up to me while we were in the car one day, like coming home uh, while they were still living with me, like in our other housemates, uh, because they do a lot of work around like transformative justice and radical justice. So they're thinking a lot about like different concepts and language. Uh, and they were asking me about like what I think like is there a distinction between like fat phobia and anti-fatness like what kind of language is just kind of being described like partially in my thesis but also just like in this realm a little bit uh, and when I was talking to them I realized kind of like fat phobia like very much so is posed as a fear because it's phobia and anti-fatness is very much so like kind of to me it's kind of the actions and like the different like systems and things that actually act upon the fat phobia that like other anti-fat like sentiments like kind of create. Uh, so they're kind of like a feedback loop in one way, but then they're also like doing their own, like um, they're doing their own work in different ways because fat phobia very much so is somewhat of an individual thing too. Like that's what kind of keeps people in like the cycles of dieting and lots of other like harmful like behaviors to the self but then anti-fatness is usually like done to others but it's triggered by like the internalized fat phobia that's kind of being projected but that's also like situational it depends but that's like how I kind of took it I think I agree with that heavily um and I, the way you've laid it out makes a lot of sense where fat phobia is almost like an internalized thing but also can be placed upon you 
whereas anti-fatness is literally like how the world around us is built to be against fat people and against fat bodies just existing in space and so a lot of times when I think of anti-fatness I think of like spaces or like objects like chairs you know like chairs not being able to hold um certain weights or if you go into a bathroom stall and it's like you literally can't turn around because it's so tight and narrow i also put in our outline about like biopower and biopolitics which is like a little more theoretical it's part of like what my thesis is i think it's an interesting intersection on the fat phobia and anti-fatness end because it's kind of it's also related to like a bunch of different uh identity based like forms of discrimination or like the identities that are assigned to people uh, and i really like the definition from like sabrina string's book uh fearing the black body which like we'll reference a million times in this talk uh but it's from foucault and he says like the state through or sabrina string says paraphrasing foucault uh the state through the institution of medicine specifically in this case uses guidelines and principles regarding what to eat and how much as a form of social control uh so it's kind of like what are we allowing people to do with their bodies or have be have be done to them as like the state so it often comes up in like reproductive rights or uh like chronic illness and like if we're thinking about patients and like personhood for people that are like disabled or like need any level of care where they're not totally independent uh and it's a really broad thing it does connect back to like capitalism in a lot of ways uh and that just feeds back into that like fat phobia anti-fatness like racist like colonial logic that like we're all kind of thinking about in this conversation yeah i think that's um like an interesting aspect to bring into it i do a lot of work around like black reproductive justice and so i'm very familiar with the concept of like biopolitics and biopower um but haven't heard of it in specific reference to like fat phobia so i'm excited to see kind of like what the connection is and how that plays out i think something even just like if you think about how when you go to the doctor and they assign you a number based on your weight and your height, which is very arbitrary, it is based off of white men's bodies, so it will never relate to especially Black women's bodies. And you are told that you need to be getting these numbers down to a certain level. But for a lot of us, if we were to get to those levels, we would be dead or malnourished. Yeah, personally, I have been like in the overweight or obese categories of BMI for my whole life. And at one point, while I was in like the overweight category, I was like 13, maybe. And I was still like maybe like 160 pounds, like which isn't, you know, super small. Like when people think about like weight, like that's a weight that people are like, oh, it's kind of big. But I was like, kind of stick thin. If you kind of looked at me, and I was just like, they were still telling me that I need to lose weight like constantly because that's what they're hyper-focused on. Uh, it's part of like medical education where they're just like, oh yeah, if their BMI is over a certain level, you have to kind of like tell them and recommend like, oh, weight loss or like managing your weight or like diet kind of things. And it's fucked up, like frankly, because it's not really giving advice. It's just saying like, oh, this number is wrong. Fix it. Exactly. And a lot of the times it's like your weight has no like actual bearing on your quote unquote health. Um, and I say quote unquote health because um, Deshaun makes a really good point. Um, I forget their last name, but Deshaun from Twitter, I follow them, I love them. Um, they do a lot of work regarding fat phobia um, and anti-fatness as anti-blackness. And they talk about how health is not something that black people are actually afforded because the way that our bodies are in direct opposition 
to what health looks like in a white Western world, we are always going to be seen as, you know, unhealthy. And that is really directly tied to, you know, the type of cultural foods that we eat that are passed down through generations that are good for us because they're nourishing us and they are from our ancestors. Um, it comes to the way that our bodies store and carry fat differently from white bodies. And so when I think of that, I think of how a lot of times Black women's bodies will be wider in the hips, um, in the butt area. And what is not known is that that's actually good if we were in our proper location. Like if we were still in the continent, that is good for redistributing heat. And that's not something that is very well talked about in the medical field. Right. And I think part of that comes a lot from the fact that like eugenics defines such a huge part of like our medical era of like medical advancement like really booming but like if we're thinking about like dietary science in reference to the Kellogg's uh, it's a tool for like white supremacy because we're focusing on in that era anyway they were focusing on like bettering the white race quote-unquote and they were pretty much just saying like oh yeah the black folks are just going to die off we're not going to study them uh, we don't need to do anything else. It's just naturally going to happen because natural selection and like we know all those like basic like evolutionary theories and that didn't happen obviously. Uh, and now we're here, we have all these different people and like all these, um, such a smaller globalized world where all of us are kind of mixing and engaging with each other, but we only understand like health and like medicine and like we're only teaching people health and medicine from the perspective of like what we know about like say BMI, which was only taken from wealthy white European men and like a very small subsection of like wealthy white European women. And that's like super underrepresented too. So it's just fundamentally not representative of anything that's actually happening in our world right now. Wow. Thank you both for those really, really good points. Um, I think that ties into our last definition, which is medicalization. And simply put, it's basically treating non-medical problems as medical ones and doing so through what Cicely just talked about, biopolitics and biopower. So we see how things like addiction, menopause, infertility, and even birthing, like we talked about during one of our episodes, is turned into a medical problem that can only be solved through a white medical system. And so throughout this episode, we're really going to talk about how whiteness and capitalism has turned fatness into a medical problem that has to be cured um, and not something that is just part of our lives. I mentioned a little bit earlier, like dietary science being uh, like kind of a tool for the white supremacist agenda, like back in the day, which back in the day means like in the early 1900s. So really not that far. And like the end of the 1800s, really. Uh, but John Harvey Kellogg was kind of instrumental in like developing dietary science. And he ran the Battle Creek Sanitarium at some point, uh, which was like a very like rich, white, expensive, like health uh, place. I'm not very familiar with sanitariums originally, but I am from Battle Creek. So like the Kellogg's kind of run everything or like they are often the people who like there's the WK Kellogg Foundation that donates to things like globally. Uh, so it's an interesting kind of connection there when we're like we're reliant on support from an organization like this is their roots and it doesn't get talked about as much there. Um, is this the same Kellogg like cereal man? Yes, this is okay. the Kellogg <laughs> that is on all your cereal boxes. Like if you look at any of them, like you'll see my hometown and like you can just look at the Battle Creek Sanitarium and see so much bullshit <laughs> and how expensive it was really because it was absolutely super expensive just to tell people that 
they should bathe, they should be vegetarian, and they should have have milk, like drink a lot of milk. Uh, they were super, John Harvey, Harvey Kellogg, like got into like the sanitarium and like all this other business because there was such unnecessary death in his family in like Western Michigan, I believe, because uh, that's where I'm from. And I assume that was the area like that they were talking about. And they just didn't believe like that modern like Western medicine was going to help them. So they were looking for alternative solutions. And they met like Ellen White, who like also helped found Seventh-day Adventism. And they kind of like teamed up uh, on the sanitarium. And they were both really invested in, quote unquote, controlling the vices of the animal appetites, oral and sexual, specifically those women, uh, which again is just basically like making sure the white women can reproduce and like, you know, keep the white race quote unquote going. Um, and it's just absolutely nuts <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Uh, but John Harvey Kellogg and like this whole thing, he's super instrumental in dietary science as a field, like it becoming like more of a medical problem as to like your proper diet and like the weight for an average American. The history of that field was usually with like race scientists and eugenicists anyway. Uh, but then they just really made it like, okay, cool. This is like somewhat scientific because even though John Harvey Kellogg and his family were very against Western medicine, he still got credentials for like Western medicine at the time, in addition to the alternative ones that he was doing. And he was trying to do this balancing act of like making sure like, okay, cool. I have authority on multiple levels, even though he had so many legal problems with the AMA, uh, the American Medical, American Medical Association, and is just kind of a hot mess. Like the whole situation was. But that's a lot of where like dietary science and dieting like kind of becomes like a really big deal. Yeah. And I think you were starting to touch on this. I think um, when you were saying like, you know, the legality of telling people that they need to be eating these certain things when it's like, where is the the research behind this? Where is Where are you making these claims and what are you basing them on? And it also makes me think of another point that Deshaun has talked about, which is like, you know, placing morality on food, like saying that certain foods are good for you or certain foods are bad for you. Instead of just saying like, you know, food is food and it's either going to nourish you or it's just going to be something that maybe you consume for fun. And why is that a problem? Like if you want to eat, like just eat. And I think that it's like kind of what is the really big danger of diet culture is creating this fear of food and this fear of, you know, and taking things that are not only good for you, but make you feel good in an effort to try to appease this ideal that, you know, realistically we will never achieve. Yeah. A question that I don't know if either of you um, necessarily would know or not. I don't even know the name of the diet now that I'm actually trying to think about it. I think it's like the paleo or the keto diet or something. Yeah. (laughs) Whichever one, there's one that's like the premise of it is like, oh, we're going to go back to eating the way that humans are like naturally intended to quote unquote. I think that's paleo for like the paleo whatever paleontological era I don't know yeah whichever one it was um so I'm just curious because obviously like the idea of diet culture you're talking about is like the 1900s um and medicalization and like westernized medicine is such a recent phenomenon in comparison to like human history obviously um so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on kind of that combination of diet culture and like the white western thing that it is in like pairing it to I guess humans like natural consumption I guess like what we're naturally supposed to be doing 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. Uh, I think a big part of a lot of those diets, like specifically paleo and like some of the other ones, is like we're trying to think about what's like quote unquote natural, like what's normal for human beings, because there's a lot of people who are either like Luddites, which I if I'm saying the correct word, like you're averse to like technology and like advancement in the way that like we've kind of gone with like industrialization or you're like a techno fetishist like Elon Musk pretty much is. That's like an opinion, not a fact. <laughs> um, but like a lot of people do take that knowledge of like, oh, we've gone too far, like with all the processed foods and like all these other things that are like poisoning us, which like they're not entirely wrong. Uh, but they also go back to if you go to the extreme of like paleo which is like I believe that's maybe the diet where you're just like kind of eating like raw meat or like the other it's something very extreme uh like once you get to that level you're not really helping yourself or you're like not going off of like evidence of what's natural or like what early humans did because we don't really have much of an idea of like what they actually did because there's not a lot of like written record for that so it's usually just in my eyes, at least, of like what I've seen, it's like a rejection of like what's happening right now. But it's also still like a diet that you have to be able to afford to like avoid the processed foods and like eat your raw meat or whatever it is that paleo is. Yeah. And I think there's is like, like, I know there's certain cultures where like raw meats are included in different dishes, but I don't think every single meat <laughs> that they eat is raw because <laughs> that's expensive. Yeah. And I also... Like Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, there's a reason we learned how to cook things. Mm -hmm. And I was also just thinking, like, again, to the point of, like, eating the foods of, you know, your people. And, like, you know, if that is something that you were eating, it probably was prepared a certain way to be consumed a certain way. Like, we weren't just going out and, like, just eating something because it was there. And so it makes me think about how certain cuisines are demonized or seen as lesser than or just like something that is not to be explored and shared with others. And specifically what comes to mind is like most foods from Western Africa, like Central Africa, like even South Africa too, like there's, those aren't cuisines that are really explored on, you know, those cooking shows or in magazines. The, the food world doesn't really explore foods like that. And so you have a lot of people like recently there's this TikTok challenge apparently where people were going to try fufu, which is like the food of my people and spitting it out on camera because yeah. they don't eat it properly. It's the absolute worst trend I've seen. Okay, one thing I wanted to point out, since we're talking about like the idea of natural in terms of dieting and paleo diet, kind of going back to what Sophia said, like what even is natural? What scientists and dietitians consider natural is definitely influenced by whiteness and colonialism. And it's not going to be, you know, African cuisine or South American cuisine. It's going to be what we see as natural in white America and really white classed America. And on top of that, it's like who even has access to these things when we have food apartheids, you know, neighborhoods where there is not even one grocery store within X amount of miles. So all of this like natural talk is really like so unnatural because of colonization and resounding effects of that literally this is everything that my major is about <laughs> i'm a science technology and society major or sts is like the shorthand uh one of the major like theoretical points that we talk about a lot is actor network theory so basically everything in science has come to be what it is and, like every all the facts that we know have come to be how they are because of networks of power that enable people to like 
explore their agendas and like, you know, push their agendas and like interact with other people and create tools and like measurements like BMI that ultimately like will determine like the trajectory of a lot of people's lives for like centuries as they have. A lot of the stuff that they are studying or looking at, like they're based on those networks of power and like the access they have are based on like social observations or prejudices prejudices from like just looking at people like that's and that's and that's the long and short of it like it's everything we find natural is because like we've been told this is natural we've been socialized to believe this is natural and it's different for like different nation states because they have like somewhat different ideas but a lot of it is influenced by like western society as well yeah i think that's interesting it makes me think I'm Greek, obviously, as most of you know. (laughs) Um, And there's like all of these weird fake studies that are like, here's why the Greek Mediterranean diet is the healthiest diet in the world, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, maybe it's just that like we have national health care. Like that could be the thing (laughs) that's really changing it. Like, has anyone looked into that? And they're like, no, it's definitely the fish. Um, And then they'll like have people in like the US and random other places like do the diet and they're like, wow, it like didn't do anything. And I'm like, well, why did you decide that this one random thing that people in a very particular place and like a very particular climate were eating was just going to work everywhere. And that for some reason that was going to like do the things that it needed to your body and ignore like literally every other factor and also like the cultural factors that come along with food and like food practices or whatever this like white medical western idea is because I also feel like outside of the U.S. food is very communal and it's like it's a practice like it's not just like I'm eating there's a way you go about food that I feel like isn't as present in a lot of western societies and is also part of why it's it's become so medicalized is because it's it's not like rooted in tradition, if that makes sense, which I don't think happened on accident. Like, I think that's definitely a product of like biopolitics and these like big pharma and big tech and things like that and like capitalism. Yeah, there's a lot of smokescreen that like goes up and like happens when we're just looking at like individual pieces of like diet or like why one group is healthier than another. Like I was doing a project for one of my classes last semester. I really can't remember what the name of it was, but it was like a demography assignment. And I was like, okay, cool. I guess let me look at like life expectancy tables because I needed to look at something like that. But I was looking at Mediterranean islands and like life expectancy because I'm like, yeah, this is a thing that people are like, oh, it's like a huge difference. So there are like lots of uh, centenarians, like 100 year old plus people like yes they're living that long but it's not just because they're eating fish it's not like when you see like a 100 year old woman on like tv who's like yeah i drink beer and eat bacon and stay away from men like there's other layers like however entertaining that is and it's also like the absurdity and violence of people who have come and like decimated people like groups of people and lands to define what natural is on this land that isn't even natural like it's not naturally anyone's who isn't indigenous and neither is like food practices or anything that we've constructed in our medical system today so yeah I mean we've talked about this so much in our other podcasts but so much of what we talk about with health equity and specifically racial equity cannot be achieved on settler colonialism and so it's really important to like be intentional with the language that we use in medicine especially when everything goes back to our legacy of colonization exactly do we want to move into big pharma I guess 
Yeah, I mean, sure. My main point about like that was like a lot of our Western like diet culture is kind of reliant on like high tech medicine and like big pharma as like solutions to our medical problems and even like environmental problems. I have read this one book in my first year writing center at Vassar called Shopping Your Way to Safety. Would recommend uh, at least like as an intro to some of these things if you haven't talked about them before for those listening, I guess. Uh, but basically like just buying things and like having tech like be our salvation when in reality like that's not how that works technology usually takes a very long time to actually help people like in terms of implementation like because of cost and materials and all these other things because we would rather do those things and make those solutions accessible to people that can afford them uh to give other people profit as well rather than like disrupt oppressive systems necessary necessary to capitalism's existence in general uh, there's another podcast, if you're interested, uh, called Maintenance Phase. It's by Aubrey Gordon, who used to go by the pen name, Your Fat Friend Online. There's one episode they talked about. It's called Fen Fen and Redux, which is about diet medication. And it's just absolutely bonkers, like how dangerous these medications were. Uh, she personally said that like she had taken them for a short amount of time as a teenager. Luckily, is mostly okay now. But um, like just the fact like these are our solutions, like really dangerous drugs that get pushed through the FDA and like pushed through like other organizations to like the hands of even like teenagers is how we're looking at it. And like things like gastric bypass surgery, like in like our medical context, like those are our solutions to uh, like fat specifically and they're extremely dangerous solutions rather than just like addressing social issues or like different oppressive systems that are stopping people from like having like quote-unquote healthy behaviors in the first place like eating like nutritious foods that aren't just entirely processed and full of high fructose corn syrup sorry it just made me think about like yeah how it's so easy to just tell someone to like lose weight as like a a catch-all solution to their problems instead of just addressing what they're actually coming in for. Like, there are so many stories of Black women, especially, like, even just recently in the news, there was a whole doctor who went to the hospital and was telling them what was wrong with her and why she needed help, and they told her she was being too aggressive. And so she ended Mm -hmm. up passing away on the table. Like, there are so many instances of when Black women, especially, are going to advocate for themselves when they're going to the doctor and they are completely dismissed because they are seen as, you know, stronger than other people and that they can with, um, withstand more pain. And so you literally have a lot of Black women dying when they go to the hospital seeking care or you have them being misdiagnosed or not even getting the diagnosis that they need to prove that there is something that is not right with their bodies. And so you have people going in, seeking the help, giving all of the information that they know about their bodies and then being turned away. And it's just like, it's so dangerous. And it's also just so like disheartening that even if you can go in and provide them with everything and they just have to write their official sign off, they still will refuse to do that. Yeah, I was gonna talk about this later in the podcast, but I feel like it's a better segue right now. But going off what you were saying, Sophia, there were so many like stories I read when I was working on my thesis on reproductive health of Black um, mothers to be that would go into um, clinics and like talk about their health issues that they're facing, and the only like things that doctors would say, well, is you should eat healthier and you should lose weight. And there was one woman who actually had a whole tumor that was misdiagnosed because 
the diagnosis was that she was too fat and they weren't like taking her pain seriously or listening to her. Tying this back to a lot of what Deshaun says um, and writes about is like the whole notions of beauty and desirability that affect our social aspects, but also like that's so intertwined into how people get care into, in the healthcare system because it ultimately lies on, you know, whose voices are we valuing, whose stories are we uplifting and who's who do physicians see as legitimate and what concerns are seen as legitimate all of this like it's so easy to talk about theoretically but it literally affects people's health right when they talk to their doctors and how they're listened to and treated yeah and i think that point also reminds me of I feel like I mentioned COVID in literally every podcast, but um, with COVID I, at the very beginning when um, like being, I don't even know how they phrased it. I think just like having fatness as like a comorbidity um, and it's still listed as a comorbidity. Like if you go on to vaccination eligibility websites, it's like if you're fat, you can get the vaccine, which like power to you, get your vaccine. But like why why are we thinking that that's the comorbidity and so they did a bunch of studies and when they controlled for bias like there was no difference between somebody whose bmi showed them as being like underweight normal weight overweight whatever um and the the real thing that was changing these covid outcomes was literally just doctors seeing a patient and deciding like oh you're fat and so you're unhealthy and so there's nothing i can do for you and so i'm not going to give you the best care that I can give you and that's what was causing these like disparate outcomes and not the fact that they were overweight themselves or something like that um and so I think kind of going along with both what you Askadar and Sophia was saying were saying about um like black women going into doctor's offices and being mistreated and so now it's like what do you do when you're black and you're fat and you're a woman And you have all of these different things that doctors are going to be biased towards you against and that people are going to think that that's what the outcome is supposed to be because that's what they've been reading in these kind of unfounded papers when in reality the issue is the bias and the system that you're being treated within. Exactly. And I think a lot of, sorry, I just had so much to say and I'm just like, God damn. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. Because I'll say like this personal anecdote as well. But I was in like a determinants of health class. We were in like the biology section because they split into biology, sociology and environmental. Uh, And we were talking about obesity that day. And I was like, I'm dreading this. I don't want to be in this class. It's going to be terrible. Considering that the professor didn't really know a lot about it besides like, oh, yeah, this is biologically and like medically what we say obesity is. It was a very hard class for me because like I am obese myself. Like if you look at my BMI, I'm like, ooh, I am the example. Uh, But I had to basically tell the class like where BMI comes from and uh one of my friends actually had asked a question because she went to a like talk that I think Columbia had offered like through the medical center at some other time and had asked about okay like what about these health outcomes that Athena mentioned uh like and the research that had been done like to say like okay cool it's actually bias it's not usually like the fact that they're overweight or like that they have a specific BMI and he like just vehemently like shut it down he was like absolutely not I don't think that's valid at all and I'm just like but you didn't know the first thing about the history about BMI so I'm like if you don't know no go ahead sorry I think that's really crazy because I literally had 
almost the same exact experience in my policy and law seminar this past semester. And I honestly, I don't know, my professor was saying he went to some talk. And for some reason in my head, it was at Columbia, but like maybe it wasn't. And I'm just making that up now because that's where you were. But he went on like this super long rant about how he just like does not believe that bias affects the results and all of these different things. And everyone in my class was like telling him all these statistics and citing these papers. And he was just like, no. And I was like, and you get to decide our policies and laws surrounding public health? Like, great. yeah, I'm like, you would fail. You would fail my research methods class that we took because like that's not at all like what y'all are teaching, at least in the other class even. So like that is a really salient thing. And like packing that on top of like being a black woman already seeking healthcare, especially if you're like, say also disabled, because there's a huge number of people in the United States, especially like in the black community who are disabled or who have disabilities, like maybe don't call them disabilities because they're just so common, like asthma or like even technically like needing glasses uh, is a disability, but like, because it's been accommodated, we don't see it that way because it's about your environment and like how things are like, how you're accommodated. Uh, So it's just really the best example, but best and worst example of intersectionality and like how that can be so detrimental to your health, because there's frankly almost nothing you can do about it because everything has just been stacked against you. Yeah, no, I was like literally your point about um, like something just as simple or it seems as simple as glasses, which like opens up a whole world to so many people. It's like, okay, why can't we just do that? for all of the things that require like accessibility, like creating a world that is more liberatory for everyone, you know, will result or will require us to be uncomfortable for some people who are just used to like doors opening for them or things that are just like, that they don't think about. You have to be willing to like think about other people. And I think that's where a lot of our problems. Oh. Yeah, I mean, we'd rather disappear all the people that don't fit like our ideas of beauty, our ideas of like what's normal or like natural, quote unquote, because that's more convenient for us. We're not uncomfortable. We don't have to challenge like what we believe or what we've been taught. We can just say like, okay, cool. Um, that person is disabled, but like, don't look at them. Like they like, don't ask questions. And like, you know, it's not, it's kind of depending on the person because some disabled folks will answer your questions like they especially if you're a child a lot of the time they'll be okay with it because that's a good learning moment but you know what they don't have to just like black folks don't have to educate you or like any other person of any identity doesn't have to educate you on their struggles uh but because we'd rather disappear everyone rather than like confront the issue at hand we're in this position where we currently are, where we just don't want to deal with it. Or like, we want to deny that these things exist. And we want to like vehemently say like being fat does not change your health outcomes. It's because you're the problem. And we'd rather go with like an individual narrative rather than understand that there's like a collective responsibility here. Facts. And wow, that just, when you said we'd rather like disappear people than actually take care of problems, that's literally eugenics. But we won't call it eugenics because it's considered like such a extreme term, but I feel like we've normalized so many of the extreme violences that occur on a daily basis that we don't see it as such, but it really is. Essentially what Cicely was saying, like how when we see people with a disability or even if it's a, an invisible disability, like instead of being accommodating and seeing, okay, how can we make this work for you? It's how can you be uncomfortable so that you can get this job done? This is a very like biopolitical thing because we're 
as a state even like and as individuals because like we kind of like act on behalf of the state a lot of the time especially like policing other people and like all this other stuff uh but like expecting that people can do a certain amount of labor like what do we owe each other is like a big question like just I think that's reoccurring in like a lot of people's lives but specifically while I'm thinking about my thesis and like other work especially like in public health because it's very like outward facing and into like communities uh like what I don't know like we owe each other certain debts but like owing each other like health and like wellness and like being like a certain standard like takes it to a whole different level especially when it becomes about like national issues and like nationalism in general I guess is what I'm trying to say and like all these other things that are detrimental to our health in the long run. Like it's more about the collective in those ways, but then we still want to have an individualist narrative where we're just saying that like, it's your responsibility to do X, Y, and Z, but you owe it to us to do those things, even though we're not going to provide you with an environment that is going to help you achieve any of those things. Like it's somewhat hypocritical, but it's just a mess, I would say, rather than just like just hypocritical. Um, yeah, so desirability is like what I really want to like look at. So um, Eskara knows this, but I did apply for the Watson Fellowship. And so my project is exploring how black women and femmes and non-binary people like create spaces for community care in order to facilitate healing in the different subsections I'm looking at is, you know, desire, fat phobia, queerness, and then religion. Um, and on the desirability point, like, it's so fascinating to me that there is such a a clear obsession with fat bodies and the way that they take up space, the way that they move in space. Um, and this this like almost campaign to make sure that fat people know that they are or at least that that fat people think that we are undesirable and that we are ugly and that we need to be changed and we need to literally reshape ourselves to fit into a mold of what we call beauty um but on the other side of it like I feel like this obsession comes with the 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 truth that a lot of people are not able to sit with is that they are attracted to fat bodies and it's like it's okay to be attracted to fat bodies and they're trying to reckon that with knowing that fat bodies are, you know, heavily politicized and demonized in media, in the real world, you know, when you ever see a fat person on TV, their character is getting bullied because of their size, or they're actively trying to lose weight. And so, you know, you don't have fat people just existing and doing normal things. And, you know, not always being the jolly character who's like the sidekick for the thin white female, you know, or thin white woman. Yeah, I mean, fat people are usually the punchline of the joke or, like, they're the side character. You don't see fat people, like, living a full life, especially, like, Black fat people and, like, people who aren't, like, strictly heterosexual or, like, cis or both in media or just, like, in life a lot of the time. Like, we're very isolated. Like, we try to isolate people so they don't show those things so we don't see it or we shame people when they do so that they don't want to be around others or like they try to avoid situations where they'll be critiqued in any way so they're like hiding like hiding their bodies in some ways like under clothes or like in, in other ways but it's a nightmare and I think it's interesting too because I feel like a lot of times like non-fat people don't even 
like they can't even conceptualize what being fat is if that makes sense like I feel like in terms of like social media for example and desirability and that kind of interaction I feel like I see these tweets all the time that are like if you're over 110 pounds and I'm like any adult person literally literally well over 110 pounds so I'm like you're creating these desirability politics and these ideas of like what is and what isn't acceptable and all these things and you don't even know what any of it means you're just taking like these really arbitrary numbers that you've been given by god knows who some random doctor who looked at a chart one time and now you think you like know everything about how all of these things interact when it literally like does not translate like people could be the exact same weight and be complete like have completely different bodies so I'm just like I don't I'm like where did where did you get to this point that now you've taken arbitrary numbers and attached them to another arbitrary designation and decided that that somehow is going to impact your desirability which obviously is I'm sure like we all know then impacts like who receives care in a society who's deemed important, who's deemed like deemed as worthy of these different like social categories and inclusiveness and all those different kinds of things. I think one of the most jarring aspects of this is how like young this can start. Literally how we talk about babies being chubby. It's seen as cute, but once you reach like a certain age, it's oh yikes, this is something that needs to be fixed. Meanwhile, this kid is like three or four years old. The expectations we put on children to fit this mold of desirability is just violent. And it makes no sense because children are literally supposed to live their lives like play you know just live happy lives and then that affects them through like teenage years and then well into adulthood yeah like all of this created by whiteness um literally affects people's well-being more than these ideas of health that have been constructed yeah Athena you're making a really good point about like the inability to like understand fatness unless you have existed in a fat body but I think that also kind of goes for a lot of like different identities um you know you like you know you can't understand blackness unless you live as a black person in the U.S. especially um but specifically to like the fatness point there was this um I don't know if y'all are familiar with Clubhouse I love Clubhouse you can go on there and talk about anything like there's so much education on that um and they were talking about how there was this show, um, some reality TV show, and the mother was talking to her daughter, her dark-skinned, um, chubby daughter, and her daughter was talking about how at school, like, she was like, people don't want to hang out with me because they say I'm too dark and I'm too fat, and all that her mother could think was to say was like, oh, no, you're so beautiful, but it's like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, obviously, she's beautiful, but, like, you're not addressing the point of, like, she is being told that being fat is something that is not okay. And she was unable to kind of console her daughter and have the proper language to uplift her. Like, you know, people are fat and that's not bad. Um, And so there's a lot of damage that is being done um, for young children, especially when they're being told that their bodies are something that need to be altered. Yeah, I feel like that's the premise of my thesis. It's okay to be fat, like leave fat people alone. (laughs) Like it's not a problem. Uh, I mean, the way that we socialize kids into like fat phobia and like anti-fatness in general is 
absolutely nuts to some degree. Uh, a lot of the like evil characters in shows are either like they're extreme versions of like a body. Say like Ursula is like very fat. Um, I personally don't think Ursula was too far in the wrong <laughs> as like a villain. <laughs> Which is just, that's a whole separate thing. But, um, like, a lot of our villains and, like, people we portray as evil are usually, like, fat or, like, ridiculously thin. Say, like, Isma from, like, The Emperor's New Groove. Uh, I guess, you know, sorry to keep referencing Disney movies. But, uh, like, even when we, like, make cartoons about food and, like, we show cartoon characters, like, eating or, like, just any kind of media that's regular for children, like we put implicit messages in there about like how your body should look and like what good people look like and what evil people look like and like what these people do and like what their behaviors are. And like that gets translated too. like as much as the explicit stuff is like super important, like what our parents tell us is, or like other adults in our lives, even like our families tell us is super influential to like our outlook on things later. But like, the implicit messages that like we're being fed from other facets of like our lives are also like extremely influential in their own way. Damn, I really just want to submit this podcast for my thesis. Like that'd be great. Yeah, that's like sometimes I don't want to type something. Like I really love sending voice notes or like just speaking out my thoughts and like hearing it come together. And like I wish that there were more ways in academia, especially that we can create knowledge in ways that aren't just like you need to write this so someone else can read it when that's not like how people learn and take in information and you have to cite things that are deemed reputable and all this stuff I was like that's a lot I'm reputable I'm my source exactly so <laughs> literally that's, what that's, it's gonna be. that's part of the reason I've struggled so much with my thesis because like I one, know a lot from personal experience because I've been fat my whole fucking life. Two, I just like the way that I'm supposed to structure like my argument, like even though it's like technically not supposed to be an argument because you're supposed to be like doing like all the research on like everything that's out there in the field. Uh, but like there's a lot of bullshit that's like been done as research on like fat bodies and like being fat and like especially like throughout the life course, especially with like we're I've only lived in a period of time where the obesity epidemic, quote unquote, has happened. And that happened because they changed the standards for like what a normal BMI is. And millions of people became obese overnight. Uh, and it's just a fucking nightmare to try and like make it just it feels like I'm begging people to understand or just recognize that like, hey, maybe you should be respectful to fat people because they're people, especially if they're like fat and like another marginalized identity because that just makes their lives even harder and then I'm just like why do I why am I writing a thesis about all of this like why is it why do I have to say this this feels very obvious it should be obvious big mood I feel like the only people who are required to write theses about their own trauma are marginalized people and I'm like uh, uh. anyways back to the topic at hand yeah um, I do think this point about like physicians kind of just telling people to exercise and eat better as a solution um, is a really good one. And it's something I feel like that we've talked a lot about in other podcasts and just in general is this idea that it's like you can just snap your fingers and suddenly your fridge is full of like fresh leafy produce and acai berries and whatever the fuck they want you to be eating. 
when in reality, like that costs money. And even if you have the money, you have to be in a place where it's even available to you. Like so many people can't go to the grocery store and be like, I'm gonna get myself some oat milk, some berries and a 95% lean slice of beef. Like that's such a, such a limited facet of the population even has that option to begin with. And then to be able to afford it and to afford it consistently. And then on top of that, to have the time to be able to even prepare it. Like it takes a while to cook yourself a meal from scratch, but like hitting up a restaurant and getting to go or something like that takes a few minutes. Um, And so it's this idea that like everyone has the privilege to be able to like really decide what they're going to eat and really decide kind of like what life choices they want to make in that regard. And the fact that physicians who are supposed to be caring for your health and supposed to be, I don't know, thinking about you and the things that you have access to when they're giving you your treatment, don't see you as like a person who's living in these circumstances. They're like, oh, you're fat. So here's what I'm going to tell you to do. And they don't take into account any of the other like marginalized identities you may hold or just the simple fact that like you might not want to. Like some people don't want to eat salad. I fucking hate salad. Like some people just (laughs) don't have that desire. And that's like looked down upon despite the fact that there's nothing actually negative about it. Yeah. I mean, I think also it's important to note, like a lot of fat people are usually poor, uh, which like seems counterintuitive, but like at the turn of, you know, the century when like the industrial revolution was like in full swing, that's when fatness like fell out of vogue with like rich people because poor people could finally afford food uh but then also like a lot of fat people are also disabled that's often the thing that happens like either before or after like depending on like the way they're treated because a lot of these like misdiagnoses can often lead to disabilities those disabilities can often lead to like you gaining weight or like the weight you've gained in the first place that masks the problem that they mask through bias anyway like masks the problem that the doctor like misdiagnosed if you're disabled, you don't have the energy all the time to like cook for yourself. Like I personally am disabled, like it's an invisible one, but I, as much as like there are foods that I can and can't eat, I don't always have the energy to make something that's usually, usually for my diet, like usually kind of vegan or like, it takes a while. Like there's a lot of energy involved, mental energy, especially if you have like mental illnesses and it's just, there's so many different compounding factors to how people can get food, like how they're feeding themselves. And these are like very intimate personal practices. So it's like very hard to hear the like, okay, you're not doing enough when you're already doing everything you can without like running yourself into the ground. Yeah. Um, and I'm just loving everything <laughs> that we are saying and talking about. But yeah, no, I think it's like, I think this again goes back to your point, Eskadar, like of this this notion that we always need to be productive and we always need to be working and producing labor for someone else um, to the point that we aren't even able to take care of our own bodies and to nourish our own bodies and to make sure that we're doing okay physically and spiritually and like socially. Um, And it just becomes like, if your body is not able to produce this thing in this amount of time, then you're not worth, you know, you don't have any value in this society. And that's such a common ideology that's, or at least set of behaviors too, that is pushed 
to like college age people like us, like people pulling all nighters, like having caffeine addictions, which like is a thing uh, for a lot of people are like doing a lot of things that they need just to cope with getting through, especially if like your life has been stressful in similar ways or like you haven't been able to afford food in different ways. Like that's going to kind of like balloon into a bigger problem later on, especially like when you're working and those expectations are exactly the same. Like at that point, you are not going to be okay. Like there's going to be a moment where it's just like all of these like chronic stress events and like the, the lack of nutrients in like certain ways because you couldn't afford them and because like they were always inaccessible to you is going to like manifest into something else. And then it just gets blamed on you like you alone and like nothing else that's been happening in our society like it's all individualistic the amount of functional alcoholics that my college produces because (laughs) there are so many people who are drinking to oblivion just so they can try and grind for 24 hours a day throughout the week so unsustainable like it's you cannot be like that forever or even for a short amount of time and like be okay and i'm also thinking like in relation to college like even pre-college, I feel like like your senior year of high school, everyone's like, ah, watch out for that freshman 15. And it's like this fear that's instilled in you that you're going to gain 15 pounds, which like is so little, like <laughs> realistically, you yeah. know, and it's like this thing that you're supposed to be terrified of. And like when you come home for breaks, everyone's going to comment on whether or not you did or didn't gain weight and all of these different things. And I feel like that that goes into what you're saying, that you're in this like ridiculously high stress environment. Like you have unhealthy sleeping habits, unhealthy drinking habits, like your dining hall probably is not feeding you a sufficient amount of food. I know mine was not. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and all of these different things. And nobody cares about the fact that like your mental health is probably plummeting. Like you're probably in financial distress. Like you're working yourself to oblivion. The only thing they care about is whether or not you gain this weight in your freshman year. And I think that again ties back into like these ideas of desirability. Like it doesn't matter whether you're like mentally, physically, emotionally healthy. It just matters if when I look at you, you meet my picture of what I've decided is healthy. Yeah, kind of on the flip side, it's also like how the freshman 15 has been created as this horrible thing when people can gain 15 pounds and be completely happy. And it's and like in relation to how people talk about gaining weight during relationships and the stigma of that, like you're happy. Like, why does it matter if you've gained weight or you've you've become fat or whatever? Like, it's just so pervasive how stigmatizing fatness has become in all relations of our beings just because you're fat does not mean you're not happy and I think that's something we've talked about a lot throughout this episode but I don't think can be emphasized enough I mean there's this expectation that we keep our bodies exactly the same as they were in high school which is completely unrealistic like your body changes in so many ways there's so many different like hormonal phases and like biological things that are going on with you as a person but then also like why would you want to be exactly the same as you were in high school like I don't know maybe it was a better time for a lot of people than it was for me but that doesn't seem to be the case with all the media and like all of the contemporary examples of like what people's high school experiences were but we because of fat phobia partially too like we're scared of like our bodies changing and like us aging and like potentially 
which also connected to ableism, like becoming disabled, becoming fat, becoming undesirable. And like, then we're the ones that people want to make go away. And like, we're the ones that people want to isolate because they don't want to be around them. And it's super damaging to be constantly thinking about that and constantly being scared of that. That's part of what like fuels like diet culture in the first place. They're banking on the fact that like, we know this thing is going to fail for you, but we want you to be a repeat customer. Like that's why they make like, I think I was listening to a different podcast and they were talking about like maybe like a $3 billion industry, but it's probably way more than that. Um, And most of it is just making you shit your brains out and lose water weight. Yep. And then you gain it all back within two years, like, and more. It's like a never ending cycle of malnourishment, like actively starving your body to essentially achieve whiteness. Because at the end of the day, like a lot of these industries thrive because they center whiteness. They see whiteness and athleticism as the ideal and if your body and the way you live your life is not actively always towards achieving that ideal then you need to get out of the way exactly i just looked it up because i was curious and the u.s weight loss market is now worth 71 billion dollars which is a decline from last year which was 72 billion dollars yeah, Take I definitely mix well. that up with a I definitely mix that up with a different statistic that I heard because it was like it's either like 75 billion or three billion. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's probably you know the higher one, yeah. but I didn't want to be too wrong. Wow. And imagine if that money was actually going into healthcare. Or exactly. But actually, we don't even need any more money in healthcare. We spend the most per capita on healthcare out of all Western civilizations, and yet we have the highest rates of maternal mortality. Like we just have, we just have such poor, you know, health outcomes, but we spend so much. And so it's like, okay, where's this money actually going? Is it simply getting spent on reactive measures to health rather than preventive, which I think, yeah, that is the case. And so, you know, you have a lot of people, like you're saying, like we have a lot of repeat customers. You have to constantly be going to the doctor to figure out what's wrong because they won't just help you and treat it, you know, at the time or prevent it from even happening in the first place. Yeah. I mean, we, as a country, like you said, we spend the most on healthcare generally, but among like countries of similar economic development, we spend one of the least amounts on social services and preventative measures. And there's, I forget, I can't remember what paper references it, but in terms of medical outcomes, about 80% of medical outcomes are based on social determinants of health rather than like the things that we're spending money on. So we're spending all of this money on things that make such little impact on like actual health outcomes. And then on top of that, we've developed these systems where we've decided who's even sort of not eligible, but who's deserving of proper care. Like if you're fat, if you're black, if you're disabled, if you're any of these things, if you're poor, if you have a drug dependency, whatever it might be, like you're not allowed to get the proper care because it's quote unquote your fault because you haven't taken the proper measures to do whatever it is that our medical system requires you or wants you to do. Um, And so we're like funneling all this money into medicine and we're funneling all this money into weight loss and we're not funneling any money into any of the things, excuse me, that actually matter. Yeah, like, I said like, yeah, like funding communities, like funding schools, like funding, you know, family planning, like 
you literally can break it down by zip codes and you can see how just on what side of literally the train tracks and a lot of towns it's literally what side of the train tracks you live on that will determine how long you live and what kind of access you have yeah and i was just gonna adding on to athena's point anyway like a lot of the ways that we act and like treat people in like medical systems in the United States is based on the priority of people who are donating money to research, the people who are like in control of things, like people in government, like those are all like determining like, okay, cool. This is exactly what's happening. Uh, Which is like, this is where I get on my soapbox and talk about the Bill Gates foundation and like how they spend as much money as whose total operating budget on global health initiatives. And it's a mess. I'm like, why are you, you're letting a billionaire who made a tech company, like determine like who's getting healthcare and for what. And usually donors want quick results. They're not going to invest in something that takes like generations to actually like, you know, have measurable effect or like even like more than like a couple of years. Like they want immediate results. They want something like they can see that their investment paid off. And especially if it's something they can profit off of. So because we're so fascinated with like technology and like to the point of fetishism in a lot of ways, we decide that like, okay, cool. I want this fancy like machine rather than just like providing people with what they need, like giving them housing, making sure they have clean water. Like, you know, Flint still doesn't have clean water. Uh, I'm very glad as someone from Michigan that Rick Snyder is finally getting prosecuted because he's trash, but the point still stands. Facts. And it's also like, we are spending all this money on healthcare, but healthcare in what communities? Like a lot of you were just saying. And for what? We have hospitals in white, rich areas that have all the technology you could ever possibly need, while there are literally maternal health deserts in um, predominantly like black and brown, low-income communities. And so the money's there, but it's definitely like everything in this country, disproportionately allocated. Yeah, and I think it's also, even when you do have medical facilities and stuff like in place, like Boston, for example, has like a ridiculous number of physicians and hospitals and things like that per person. And yet there's still like, I think it's a little bit over 30 years of an age gap in life expectancy between the South End, which is like where rich white people live, and Roxbury, which is like the historically black neighborhood. And so it's like, it's not like Roxbury is far from physicians or literally like world renowned medical center like I think Boston Children's is one of the is either the best or one of the best pediatric hospitals in the entire world and you're telling me that they're living 30 years less than people who live three tea stops away like so I I don't know I feel like that really goes with your point like what are we even what are we spending money on and who are we spending money on and why is it not the people that need it I was just going to add onto Athena's point, we're spending the money on like specialists and like people are crowded into Boston and like into New York City, like with which again is called like specialty maldistribution or geographical maldistribution, depending if it's like they're just a bunch of doctors in one area, like we're talking about Boston, New York and like specialties, like there are less people that are going into general practice because they'd rather like make the big bucks that a specialist does and like only do very niche things. So we not only have like a lack of people who are just providing general care to like do preventative things in the first place we're not teaching those people to do preventative things very often like they usually have to react because they have to see so 
many patients because of the lack of like general practitioners, but then also they're in one area because they're looking for profitable clients, which they can get. So they often don't treat people who are like lower income, who actually need the services way more and like can't go somewhere else. Yeah. And it's so interesting because like when I was, you know, on my pre-med track, like trying to decide, okay, what career am I going to do? Like, what, what should I go in? There was so many people saying specialize, 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 like that's where the money is. And it's like, but I want to work with kids and I want to work with families. And they're like, oh, well, you know, pediatricians don't make a lot of money. And I'm like, but why is everything about money? Like, I just want to be helping. Like, I want to actually be helping people and on the ground, like in my community, but the healthcare industry and specifically when it comes to like becoming a physician, it's so focused on how much capital can you get um, in the quickest amount of time. Yeah. And I mean, the more that we prioritize like doctors being paid a ridiculous amount of money in some cases to specialize and do very niche jobs, the more like we're going to see like negative health outcomes for people because we're focused, we're filling people into these like necessary spots because specialists are often really necessary. We're filling them in there because they want to make a lot of money. They might also care about like giving people like care and like helping them like be okay and like, you know, be healthy to some degree and have better health outcomes. That might be a side thing. But when when your priority is just money, you're going to act very differently and treat people very differently, especially if you're like, you have a fat client or like a black client or like a queer client or a disabled client or someone who fits all of those descriptors. Uh, Like they're not going to be treated as well necessarily especially if they can't pay you if they can't pay you as much as if they have medicaid like just the number of doctors that do not are just absolutely terrible at their job and like have had malpractice suits taken against them that take medicaid is astronomical yeah i don't know i guess i want to give like the one positive example that I have regarding the healthcare industry. And it actually was in my dentist's office. Um, like I had to go in and I had to get a tooth extracted because of something I did. Like I just never got my crown. And so I had to get the tooth taken out. Um, but when it came time to like, you know, get the implant, get the new tooth put in, I was having so much problems, like finding a good dentist and finding one that was affordable at that. Um, with my parents, which also fuck insurance companies, like I'll have that on the record, like are so horrible, um, right? Giving me a lot of problems, but I found this one dentist who was like so kind, was able to get me in super quickly. And then when it came down to the bill, pay it off when you can, like set up a payment plan. You can pay however much you want a month. Like it can be $10, it can be $100, like whatever you can. And then we'll tell you when the bill is over. And I had never had an experience like that with any physician with any like any medical care um because there's always such an emphasis on okay you need to pay for this service immediately which again is like then that pushes poor people to not get the care that they need because there's such a worry about how are they going to pay for it and that of course comes at the expense of their lives and i do want to say like these comments aren't like i think both of us kind of says but like these comments are to say the doctors don't deserve to get paid like they absolutely do but like when you're hassling people for money like when they are like in desperate need of services or like they need your help or like that's the only thing you're thinking about that's when there's like a huge problem because there's also 
a huge like systemic problem of like physicians like that don't get paid enough like all the general practitioners who should be paid more or like even EMTs who get paid very very little and are risking their lives for COVID right now like there's a there there's a multi-layered issue like there are a lot of people that are getting the short end of the stick here it's just the fact that like people who are like getting like a slightly longer end of the stick are giving people an even shorter end of the stick like physicians aren't getting paid enough like treating their patients very poorly I think we've kind of covered everything unless anyone has like closing thoughts before we go into resources um yeah actually like I guess I'll just finish up what I my thoughts for the podcast with this quote from like Sabrina Strings from Fearing the Black Body uh, because I think it's really important it's from the epilogue which I believe is about the obesity epidemic. uh so like there's a little bit of a longer quote it says in this way fat phobia and the desire for slimness are about far more than the empirical medical findings they began as a way of instituting what pierre bordeaux called social distinctions so the elite of society have used the denial of food along with social censorships which forbid coarseness and fatness in favor of slimness to provide the superiority of those who sit atop the social hierarchy. So indeed, the racial discourse of fatness as coarse, immoral, Black, and other not only denigrate Black women, it also serves as a driver for the creation of slenderness as a proper form of embodiment for elite white Christian women. So again, I feel like maybe this is a point you guys have probably made already, but like the oppression that people face as like black fat women or like just people with marginalized identities that are fat or but especially black women um that not only oppresses them and everyone else that not only oppresses them but it oppresses everyone else as well like white women were targeted in a lot of these like eugenicist interventions and told that they were like bad or like what the things they were doing it's definitely not as extreme but the fact that this exists at all like for anyone is justification enough to say that we need to do something about this but if there was any more reason that's needed like it's way beyond just like fat black women like it's yeah it's not an isolated issue is I guess my point yeah liberation for one is liberation for all especially when it comes to black women exactly Yes, I think that also makes me, I feel like we come to this conclusion in literally every podcast episode, but it again (laughs) brings me to the conclusion that like Black women are not afforded womanhood on the basis of so many different things and I like fatness being one of them. Um, And I can't remember if we talked about this at the beginning, um, but in one of her interviews with NPR, Um, also Sabrina String, she talks about um, kind of like fatness and slavery and how when you had like this intermixing of races and stuff and you couldn't really tell who was a slave and who was free solely based on whether or not like what their skin color was. Um, When you had like the mulatto class and things like that, um, that fatness was used as a way to delineate like who was enslaved, who was not enslaved. Because like you said, white women are expected to be slender and prim and proper and all these things and black women are expected to be the opposite of that um yeah I don't know makes me think about gender and all these different constructions of what it means to be holy woman um and who is allowed that identity in the terrible society (laughs) that has been constructed for us Mm -hmm. Max that's a good point something that Deshaun 
like literally I can't wait to read the book that they write because I know it's going to be incredible but something that they talk about a lot is on going off your point Athena is how um black men and non-binary folks are also not afforded gender because of their fatness um, and are often like the basis is if you're fat you're feminized and you're seen as a woman so really like no black fat person has a societal like right to gender in the in the world that we're living in because of all of these um, norms that we've constructed around fatness and what it means to be a fat black person. Yeah, actually, that was a point that I wanted to talk about at some point, but I totally forgot. But like how originally when Europeans came to the continent and they they were not able to distinguish like, okay, who is a quote unquote a man who is quote unquote a woman because the way that our bodies presented was not something that aligned with how bodies present in Europe. And so like you're saying, they had to create these very arbitrary rules around, you know, masculinity and femininity. Um, But actually I wouldn't even say masculine and femininity because I think we all have those types of elements, but these arbitrary rules around what is a man and what is a woman and like, you know, being very strict about genitalia and how that dictates how you are supposed to be acting. And presenting for folks who want to check out um Deshaun's Twitter it's at d-a-s-h-a-u-n-l-h um they also do have a book dropping in August of this year um it's up for pre-order otherwise I would link it on our site that folks can check out were there any other points that anyone wanted to touch on I guess that's it then we can just do the closing So like we've said on every episode, health equity cannot be achieved without abolishing these violent systems. And in this case, that involves dismantling racist healthcare practices like BMI and dieting culture, as well as dismantling white supremacist notions that stigmatize um, and promote violence against fatness and centering the voices of fat organizers and activists, particularly those who are black, brown, indigenous women, non-binary, trans, queer, um, and all different kinds of marginalized identities and recognizing and undoing the ways in which anti-fatness and fat phobia show up in our daily lives. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Per usual, you can access any of the references that we have um, cited throughout this episode on our website at donoharmhrk.wordpress.com. And a full transcript of this episode, as well as all of our previous episodes, is also available on our website. So thank you guys so much. Also, huge thank you to Cicely and Sophia for joining us and sharing your voices and your experiences um, and your research on this topic. Stay tuned to the work that they put out soon as well.